It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Vernon Steiner. Vern was appointed president and CEO of State Fund in June of 2014, after nearly three decades in the insurance industry with companies such as AIG, CNA, and most recently Zenith Insurance, where he was senior vice president of claims from 2007 to 2014. Vern received his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from the University of California, Los Angeles, where he is both an alumni and was a Chancellor Scholar. Vernon Steiner, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, wonderful to be here. And after many tries, it's great to have you uh, on the show. And I'm so looking forward to hearing your story. I feel, though, we already know each other so well, given the many attempts we've tried at this. So <laughs> I uh, can't wait to hear more about your background. And we always like to start in the early years. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. Uh, we were transplants from the Midwest. I think I was two years old when my parents picked up and left Iowa and moved to uh -huh. Southern California. And All right. Where in Iowa? Uh, we, I was born in Iowa City. I think we lived Iowa in City. West Branch at the time. Yeah. And so yeah. Were parents small farmers town. or what, what brought them to that part of the country? No. I, well, my, my mother's family uh, had some farming and ranching in their history. My yeah. dad was a, a truck driver back then, I believe. Oh, right. And, and I think he just got tired of the weather out there. And it was a time when a lot of people were moving to California. And uh, that, those, those winters can be long and hard, absolutely. I'm sure. In fact, my only memory pre-California it's actually a pretty good memory is I remember building a snowman with my father. You know, it's, I don't know. Oh my gosh. I don't know if he told That's me great. about it and I remember it or if I actually have it <laughs> earlier than two-year-old memories. So. Well, my, my mother's family were, fa were farmers in Iowa as well. So I can definitely identify and uh, share that background. Brothers and sisters, Vern? I have one brother, uh, two uh -huh. years younger than me, uh, Robert. Yeah. And uh, he's up in uh, Washington now. He's a utility lineman for uh, uh, right. uh electric uh, company up there yeah got it and and uh dad continued his truck driving when he came out west no he changed uh he became a welder and okay. he did that pretty much the rest of his career and yeah. uh, uh i used to think well my dad must be the best welder there is <laughs> that's right yeah. absolutely and and mom was stay at home bringing up you boys yes yes yeah 
Awesome. And, uh, you know, what were some of the early memories that you have, other than building the snowman, uh, you know, that maybe inspired you from mom and dad or things that they might have said or told you growing up? Well, my mom in particular, um, she took a very close interest in my education and mm. um, it, I guess in just shaping who I became. I remember... Um, these days, people make fun of me for how competitive I am. Everything, you know, is a competition, even if it's just against myself. And I remember sure. early on my mom telling me, anything they can do, you can do better. Now, I'm not sure wow. that's the parenting that I <laughs> would take, but it, it must have stuck because I, I yeah. really am a, a very competitive person. Early in my life, it was uh, more school-related. These days, it's, you know certainly career but that's a that's a different way of competing just how well right. we can do but my personal life i do a lot of cycling particularly mountain biking right. and uh, no way am i um good enough to be competitive but i can compete against myself right every yeah, time i do it absolutely. i can try to do better than i did the last time and i i'm right. i know that came from my mom and and her drilling that into me early on teaching me to read before kindergarten those kinds of things yeah, awesome. Anybody else? Anything particular from dad or were there other coaches or teachers that inspired you? Yeah, for with with my dad, the inspiration really was more just how incredibly even keeled he was. Yeah, just mm. by watching by example, he, you know, life would happen and he never let it get to him or change mm. his attitude very much. And mm. um and I really admired that. Uh, there were some other influences in my early life where they were much more volatile, but dad was right. kind of a, a steady rock. And you know, I tried, I tried, I don't know whether it was consciously or certainly later in my life, I realized, you know, that's kind of the way to approach things. You can't really control mm. everything that's going on around you, but you can exert control over how you let it impact you. And that's so true. Yeah. Fantastic. Were you a good student in school? I, I was. I was a, a very good student. Uh, that competitiveness. Yeah, that competitiveness, think, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's Top of your class, perhaps? I, I, yeah, <laughs> certainly in the early years and, you know, one of the top two, which really frustrated me in high school. There was someone else who finished mm. above me. Yeah. He was a good friend well, of mine. Well, it's good to have a competitor sometime, <laughs> though, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what about entrepreneurial things? Anything that you... Um, did uh, growing up, you know, did you have the ubiquitous paper route, sold Christmas cards, other types of things at certain times of year? So, Mowed the lawns, perhaps? Yeah. Well, interestingly, um, I didn't make this connection till later, but being from the Midwest, um, when right. it was time to start playing organized sports, my parents yeah. coached a bowling league. So I spent a lot of time oh. at the bowling alley. And I think about huh. nine years old, I started keeping score for the adult leagues and tournaments oh, oh, and sure and yeah. it was really quite lucrative i remember i used to get for oh, they paid you for they, it they, they that's awesome. i used to get 50 cents a person for league and a dollar <laughs> a person for tournaments and if somebody wow. won a tournament they'd give me a big old tip and i was nine years old gosh but, that's great but that's the start of you know automation <laughs> kind of did away with those jobs because right. nowadays bowling right. alleys they keep that's right it's all yeah it's all it's all red oh that's terrific and were you a bowler as well i i did i bowled a great deal in those early years and continued to bowl with my dad up through college 
Nice. Ever do a 300 perfect store? No, no. Score? I did have a 279 <laughs> once, which was one. 279. That's, that beats me. I think 259 was my tops. But uh, I've always enjoyed bowling. In fact, we still do that as a family when the kids come home. They go, oh, we're going to go bowling again. And then big smiles on their faces. It's a fun family sport. Absolutely. I'm not what so sure how of- the, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I'm not so sure how healthy it was with the secondhand smoke you could get in bowling alleys back in those days. <laughs> in those days, I but can you, imagine. Right, but, right. But who knew? Uh, Oh, goodness. Well, who knew? That's right. What about other types of things outside of class, Fern? What type of sports, you know, music, theater, debate, anything like that? I did some theater in high school and I really enjoyed that. I I wouldn't say I was that great at it. Um, I also dabbled in lots of sports, uh, basketball, tennis, um, uh, music. I have absolutely no talent whatsoever. (laughs) And my wife reminds me of that somewhat regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't sing unless you're in the shower on your own, right? I've had that before. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times actually my sister-in-law has, I'll be singing a song and she'll say, who sings that? And I fall for it and then tell her who the actual artist is. And she says, well, why don't you let them do it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, that's great. I won't share that with my daughter because I'm sure she'd give that to me all the time. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Um, Any other jobs other than keeping score at the bowling alley that you did uh, while you're, you know, in high school or or maybe into the college years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I um, early on in my neighborhood, there was this fellow who was running a machine shop out of his garage. Oh, and so wow. I went to work for him, you know, basically mass producing parts and did that for a couple of years. Really? And, huh. and then um, after that, I got a job at a key shop um, outside of a Sears back in the days sure. when, you know, that was like the store and there was a parking lot around it. And I worked in one of those key shop kiosks. That was a wow. was a great job to be able to study. And every now and then someone come up and order a key and um and then when I went to uh, college, I, I worked in the food service operation okay. of the dorm yeah. that I lived in my freshman year. Nice, nice. So pre- prior college, it sounds like you had some lucrative jobs. I'm sure the machine shop was good. And of course, all those tips at the bowling alley. What, what did you spend those funds on? Was that, you know, put it in the piggy bank and wait for a rainy day? Or were there some hobbies or, you know, some things that you uh, treated yourself with as you were growing up? Well, it was, it was interesting growing up. Um, I, we didn't have a lot of money. My, you know, my dad often mm. in the early eighties was uh, laid off. You know, the economy was bad and mm. the manufacturing co- economy was changing over. So, sure. um, and given the types of, um, you know, classes I was in, you know, the, the other students and friends that I made, they kind of lived on the proverbial other side of the tracks. You know? mm. So uh, I ended up Oddly, all the great things they got to do with their families, you know, the trips to Europe or the car they got, I wasn't going to get that. But I always had money to pay for us to go to the movies. You know, they didn't have the spending money, but I had the money in my pocket. But I did. I did buy my first car when I was like just turned 15 and had a year that, of course, I couldn't drive it, but I had a year to try to fix it up and make it... um, you know, look good. I never actually got to the point where it looked good. It was a combination of paint and primer <laughs> and and Bondo right. for my entire high right. school career. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, college probably wasn't a, uh, you know, a preordained given it sounds like dad 
likely didn't go right, right. Or, or was he yeah and, and did mom at all did she no. go beyond high school in her earlier years no no my parents yeah. I, I think i was the first one from certainly the immediate yeah. family i had a cousin who might have gone to college a year or two before me but uh, yeah it did was, mom and dad encourage you was that kind of part of their american dream to provide that for you or was it something was more self-motivated I think mom encouraged me tremendously everything mm. that had to do with education um, yeah. and and the competitiveness and the I might competitiveness add. <laughs> right and, and and frankly because of the kinds of you know the different um, ways of life I was exposed to going to school I actually lived in an area that was kind of economically um, depressed but the school had right. so many feeder neighborhoods and I was in the classes with people from yeah, literally the other side of the tracks. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I realized early on. This, oh, this was high school or at UCLA? Uh, no, this was pre-UCLA. It was, it was it, high school where this. Yeah. Junior high school years, right. Yeah. And I, I realized, wow, the, the way to go and live the, the kinds of life these other people live is, you know, through education. And so I, right. I Interesting. You know, yeah. set a goal early on to, you know, to go to college. And originally I, I think I was watching an episode of Perry Mason or something that said, I know I want to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. That didn't ah, actually happen, but that was my, right, my right. goal from I think fourth grade. Yeah. So that led you to your, your field of study. What, what made you choose UCLA and, and, uh, study philosophy? Well, uh, UCLA was, uh, it, it was, a great school, uh, and, and it was a good financial decision. Some of the scholarships I got sure. went a lot further at a public school in state than they would have gone had I uh, chosen a, another school. And, uh, and growing up in Southern California, big yeah. fan of the basketball team and all of sure, those things. So, sure. And um, the in-state tuition as well. Yes, that course, was a lot. That was the biggest yeah. motivation. Um, and what, did, were you on an academic scholarship? Was it sports? What was it? Your... Was academic? Yeah, I had. A, yeah. Awesome. I pretty much competed for every scholarship I could get because I I needed them in order to go to school, right. and right. I, I got some from the school, some from the alumni association. Our school district, our high school school district, sponsored scholarships that were worth a lot more if you went to one of the in-state schools um, and nice. and various other, you know, whether it be the local Elks competition or a right, PDA right. scholarship, Lions all Club those things. Yeah, all, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Yeah, cool, cool. And, and so uh, philosophy, tell us about that. Was that due to your interest in the law at that time or what, what made you choose that uh, field of study? Well, I started off and I thought I'm going to be a a computer science major, but I'm going to take Ooh. a different route. I'm going to do language and computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still planned on becoming an attorney, but I thought that combination uh, would be great. Um, and yeah. one of the early uh, classes I had to take was a logic course, which was a philosophy mm. course. And oh, I just fell in love with it. It was you loved it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all about arguing. Yeah, and right, if you talk right. to my wife, she'll tell you I love to argue. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't call it arguing. I think it's you know it's really examination exactly. But <laughs> she calls it arguing. So oh, yeah. I love it. But but it just fell in love with it. So I said, well, let me take another yeah. class in this. And and next thing you yeah. knew, I was taking um, ethics classes and metaphysics classes, and Gosh. I'd gotten so deep into it. I said, I'm just going to major in philosophy. That should still it was be just a good really major. your love of the field. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, 
Yeah. And and so did, did you still kind of at the time of your uh, finishing up your bachelor's still plan to go to law school? Did you take the LSAT and we're on that trajectory or did that shift at some point it, during it, your undergraduate years? It shifted. Uh, it yeah. was interesting. And um, I I have great respect for the law and a couple of my best friends are attorneys. But I, I came to this realization that the ethics of the bar were mm. not the ethics I wanted for myself. I mm. think they're really important ethics for our society, but I didn't necessarily want to represent a client if um, that client's um, beliefs and behaviors weren't aligned with mine. Even if they're right yeah. to have those beliefs and behaviors is absolutely something that needed to be defended. I didn't really want to be... Um, Put in that. I was worried I'd be too good at it and I would lose yeah. my own ethics yeah. in this greater. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you share that with me. Just today, one of my best friends whose son went to Vanderbilt Law, got a great degree, had worked in social justice when he was an intern and uh, his undergraduate, loved it, and then went to work for one of the top law firms in New York. Told him last night he rates it on a scale of one to 10 as a one. Oh. Yeah. And it's just super unhappy, but, you know, sees it as an opportunity to pay back those student loans and grants and, and deeds. But, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that profession does have the reputation of, of you know, not particularly the highest level of ethics and integrity. Right. And even when they, I think that when they're following the ethics of um, their profession, it's not necessarily what the everyday American would think, well, that's the right thing or wrong thing. Right. I mean, I, I understand them, but um, other folks have to carry that particular banner. I decided I, I didn't want to carry that. It banner. wasn't for you. Yes. Yeah. So what was the first job you took out of college, Vern? Well, I was actually in claims, adjusting claims. Yeah. And, yeah. Right in the insurance business. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it gave me a taste of law. And it gave me a yeah. taste of medicine. Sure. And it gave me a taste of social work all at the same time. It was uh, interesting. I had been... Were you an inspector or were you on the phone or kind of did a combination of both? It started on the phone and shortly thereafter yeah. was an outside adjuster, which means yeah. I would, after a, an event, I would go out and take statements like and an do an investigation. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. It was... Um, wow, terrific. A lot of fun. I mean, the, something new every day, dealing with people, dealing... The time just went by so quickly. And I had spent the yeah. last several years working in a food so service operation where sometimes it seemed like the clock didn't move. <laughs> you know, I was looking, <laughs> right, to, right. I, I was looking something that would be engaging and mentally challenging and with variety. And it certainly had that. It also offered a great opportunity to, to make a difference. I mean, you yeah. could, yeah. you're in a position where people need help and you, you can actually provide that help. Uh, and yeah. that was one of the things that attracted me to right. it early on. Interestingly, one of my first interviews, I I got really interested in it, went through multiple interviews with this organization, and they called me at the end and said, uh, we decided to go with someone else. Actually, it was, huh. they were using a, a recruiter, and, and I said, right. why? And they said, there's yeah. something you said in one of your interviews that they just thought your needs wouldn't be met. And I said, well, what was it? They said, you said that your battery got recharged by helping people. And they thought that this Whoa. wouldn't be the job for you. 
So, which meant that wasn't the company wow. for me because that was a reflection of their culture. That's huh? exactly right. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, we won't name that company, right. but, but I could probably I probably have dealt with their insurance claim folks in the past. You may have. believe me, I've I've run into that from time to time. I think we all have. Well, isn't that amazing? Good for you to have asked that question too. Was that in your twenties? Was that that early was in on? my early twenties? Yes. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Fantastic. Well, in the jobs that you did take, then did you have leadership responsibility? early on? I did. I was, mm-hmm. uh, I got into the field and was probably less than a year before I had my first supervision opportunity. I had been uh, supervising, managing the, um, a student manager in the food service operation at uh, okay. UCLA. So I'd had some years of leadership managing people. and, yeah. and I, I got an early opportunity. I was fortunate and, uh, moved on to a supervisor role and, uh, Loved it. I love the combination of having the technical work and also being able to groom people, work with them, help them realize their best selves. Yeah, fantastic. What What were some of the earliest leadership lessons you learned from, you know, bosses and mentors, good or bad? Yeah. And you don't need to mention the names of the companies or the bad ones. But, you know, sometimes that observational uh, lesson learning can be helpful too. So the amazing thing is, some of the biggest leadership lessons I learned, I learned in food service. Yeah. Uh, yeah I worked right. as a part-time student supervisor in mm, uh, at UCLA, at UCLA Dykstra Hall yeah. dormitory. And there was a time when I was just really kind of unhappy and I didn't mm. really spend a lot of time thinking about why it was just, you know, very, uneasy and yeah. and then the person i reported to who actually had been a friend um got promoted and i got a new manager mm. and my entire life changed and the lesson wow. from that and and the new manager was consistent reliable there was no mm. volatility you knew what to expect and i mm. walked away from that and i said i'm a student this is not what i'm going to be doing, you know, three years from now. I don't do this full time. And the impact this person, this manager had on my life was so profound that I was Mm. unhappy, not only at work, but I was unhappy outside of work. And, and Uh that lesson that the, the incredible impact that um, a manager, your direct supervisor has on not only the quality of your work life, but how that impacts everything else, that that's stuck with me. And, and yeah. you know, is something that I've kept in mind every day of my work life from then. Um, how long did you work for that person? I was probably working for that person for about two years. Yeah. Oh, it, my gosh. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. It, and it, yeah. it also had a cumulative effect, right? And Yeah, it was I can ama- imagine. It was amazing. In that same yeah. um, environment, I learned... We had a, another new a change in management and a new uh, senior manager came into the food service operation. And at that point, we were all pretty happy. We had a good team. You know, there was a silly competition about which dorm was the best one on the hill. And we were sure it was <laughs> us. And this new manager came in from one of the other operations and started changing everything. Mm. And... You know, really didn't involve people, didn't explain what he was doing. Morale went down. People started to leave. I needed Mm. the job, so I stuck around. About a year later, uh, I realized that all the changes 
actually made sense and they worked and things were working better. You know, whether mm-hmm. it was moving a sink or doing something else, it made, but it wasn't good enough to be right. The way you do things and how you involve people and the respect you show for them when you ask their, for their input or you explain why you're doing what you're doing has a huge impact on, Absolutely. And, and again, these are lessons I learned as a student working Early in a food on. service operation, yeah. but they were leadership lessons. Right, right. Fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about your insurance career. We know the, from the bio that you're CEO of State Fund, which is kind of an interesting organization, kind of quasi-private, quasi-public, right? If that's right. the right way to describe it. Um, but you you spend a lot of time working for large corporations, wonderful insurance companies like AIG and CNA. You know, how did you kind of know that that was the right direction for you? Because you've been Gosh, what, 20 plus 20 years uh, in the insurance industry? I think it's right on 29 now. And Yeah, wow. <laughs> Going into the third decade. <laughs> right. Initially, it was just the, the interest of the work. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the joke in the insurance industry is no one actually plans on going into insurance (laughs) and and almost every story i've heard from everyone i've talked to it wasn't a plan but it happened and and it and it works well for you know some people and and i think it it tends to be one of the industries that people do stay in for decades i mean as you know i've recruited in it and we know some common people uh, as well that have worked in the industry in fact one of your predecessors but um you know i found uh particularly with my insurance clients they really only want people that have worked in the insurance industry you know it's one of those few industries where i do you know fortunately have the experience but I know I need to look for people that come from insurance industries, whereas a lot of other industries, you can look at parallels, mm. right? But there is something quite unique about the insurance industry where it tends to really only breed its own, so to speak, That's, right? Yeah, There's I think a, that is very true, yes. A lot of promote from within and people kind of come up through the ranks and and stay longer term. Were you ever tempted to, to wander outside or did you just always kind of enjoy, you know, the business starting in claims and then moving into, you know, greater responsibility as your career progressed? You know, I, I wasn't tempted because I was mm. always interested. I was never bored yeah. and um, curious. Uh, mm. Exactly. And there was always yeah. the, you know, the next opportunity in in the business. So, um, no, it was it was very good fortune uh, for me to to learn about this field and and then have the opportunity to get into it. Yeah. And you were, is it about 10, 15 years at, at AIG? That was probably one of the longer it, periods it was, uh, of employment, correct? It was about 10. I think it was about right around yeah, about nine 10. that I was at yeah, AIG. Yes. It. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, it sounds like you had increasing levels of responsibility there. Um, CNA, if I'm not mistaken, is is it slightly smaller than, than AIG it or is. is it about the same yeah. size? Oh, yeah. It's, right. It's, so, so tell Okay, I'm sorry. It certainly was then. When I was at AIG, yeah. it was when AIG was huge. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that transition. You know, many of the folks in the audience work for middle market companies or want to in the future, but many of them, like yourself and myself, worked in larger companies earlier on before they kind of, you know, moved in. Was that a big challenge for you? The shift of working for a a large CIG to a to a smaller CNA. Uh, no, actually, it was just the opposite. Um, mm. it, it, another kind of lesson when I when I got the position at AIG, I 
I loved it. And I thought, this is the company I'm going to work at for the rest of my career. And I, yeah, I yeah. moved up <laughs> relatively quickly. And I thought, this is my dream job. At that point, I was a, a regional vice president. Uh, I had no desire. And I didn't think um, my family had any desire to move to New York, the home office. So I thought, this is the job for me. Um, yeah. But uh, things change. Cultures change in organizations. Right. Uh, leaders change. And I started to not like uh, the the kind of leadership and mm. and the position that I was in as really a middle manager of you know relaying the reality in the field to home office and then implementing you know home office's ultimate direction in the field. Um, yeah, you know, when you take a position, a leadership position, you you need to advance the goals and agenda of the organization, but you hope right. that you work for an organization that is listening. Um, and you're never going to find a situation where absolutely everything that the senior leadership team wants you to do aligns perfectly with what you want to do. Of course. But as yeah. long as it's enough, it's, you know, it's fine. And you understand that mm -hmm. that's, you know, you don't get to have your way all the time. Uh, and it got to the point when I was at AIG where I thought, you know, this is, I actually don't feel good anymore about mm. this. And well, they went through quite a transformation. Right. I, this, for me, this was that. before that. I, I left AIG in about okay, 2003, which turned out okay. to be incredibly good fortune because, good yes, yeah, had I right. stayed another four or five years or so, that would, I had some great friends who were very much damaged by yeah, the difficulty yeah. they went through. Um, so when I went to CNA, it was, uh, even though it was still a large organization, 10,000 people, the, the culture was different. The level of, of trust and leadership uh, mm. was different. The organization was not nearly as financially healthy. And there were some, back right. then, some, some difficult challenges that they were yeah, trying to tackle. Uh, but uh, I felt more empowered to tackle them. And mm. the job actually became more rewarding and easier and yeah, nice. it's a i think um, a lesson in management philosophy you, you hire a bunch of talented people but if if you have a culture that is completely controlling and untrusting then mm. those people are not going to flourish and i often felt like i was doing things with one hand tied behind my back at aig well right. After I left, right. I thought, no, no, it was two hands tied behind my back. <laughs> you know? Once you saw another environment where <laughs> exactly. you could flourish. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and then and then seven years at Zenith. And if I'm, again, not mistaken, Zenith, again, was was smaller than CNA. Yes. So that's correct. And it, didn't they ultimately become part of Liberty Mutual or was Zenith sold to someone else? They I'm were sold to, to uh, Fairfax, uh, a Canadian right. company. That's right. Yes. And, yeah. yeah, got it. Yeah. And again, was the attraction kind of smaller pond but bigger fish or what was the um you know kind of motivation to 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 join zenith at the time you did I, there were two motivations i i was i really um enjoyed my role at cna but they had asked me to move to chicago and mm, um, i was commuting to chicago and the deal was okay when you're yeah, when your son um, kids are out of school, get, gets yeah. out of school, you're yeah. going to have to right. you know, move here, um, which was probably fine with me, but not so not so fine with my family. <laughs> and right, and, sure. and I, although I probably would have done it, uh, and I was recruited to come work for Zenith, and so the two things that attracted me to Zenith was 
it was headquartered in California, so I wouldn't have to disrupt my family's life as much or wouldn't be faced with that choice as frequently. And also, it had just a reputation uh, unparalleled for for being a quality insurance organization. And, you know, there's... It's very rewarding to be associated with a brand that is respected. and Right, right. And then you went back to the claims area, kind of where you started. I did, yes. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And did you leave the time of the acquisition then when you left in 14? Or were you recruited to state fund, you know, to become their CEO before that uh, transition? It was actually later. The acquisition. Later. If I remember, the acquisition was in 11. Um, Oh, so that took place earlier. Right. Okay. And the acquisition. stayed stayed through that. I did. And it was one of the most seamless, well-done acquisitions you can imagine. Those can be painful. So that's great. The philosophy uh, seemed to be. Uh, of Fairfax was, you know, we're going to acquire good companies with good people and allow them to run themselves, them right? And good for them. And I think Fairfax then um, is a an organization that really focuses on how they invest um, the resources. And of course, insurance companies have collect premium up front and then pay it out over right. time. And so their investment right. strategy, buying insurance companies worked well for their investment strategy. And and they had a pretty, I think, evolved way of getting those companies to collaborate, but leaving the cultures intact if they approved sure. of the culture. Sure. Awesome. Well, that's uh, that's a sign of a good acquirer, right? Yes. When they buy a good company that's run well, let the people continue. If anything, give them more freedom to con- continue to do well. Um, and then in 14, uh, were you were you tapped by a recruiter to come over to State Fund? Or how did that opportunity come about? I was. I I. Got a call from a recruiter. Uh, they said, mm-hmm. you know, State Fund is looking for a CEO. And I, I knew they were because I was in California and State Fund is the biggest work comp sure. carrier in California. Well, you, you work really close with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And at that time, I, I will tell you, honestly, I had had a conversation a couple of weeks ago before that call from the recruiter with a with a colleague and, and to demonstrate how well or not well, I knew myself, I said to the colleague, you know, I think I'd have to be desperate and unemployed to take that job because it had been years of, State Fund had been through years of um, difficulties, cultural challenges, and some things just by virtue of who the organization is, stepping up when the market collapsed and having to do that sure. inside of a, a structure, a civil service structure that didn't really and allow dealing for with it. the politics of it. All of those right, things. Right. Well, the governor's basically your boss, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Or well, the, ultimately? The governor, yes. Um, he, he appoints, <laughs> or, the, uh, or he or the she. The governing committee. Yeah, they, right. they appoint yeah. the board yeah. or nine out of the 11 right. board members. And and it is um, you know more attached to politics than I'd ever dreamed mm. any other insurance company could be. But then I got the call and... <laughs> I realized, well, okay, there's that competitive element to me. Sure. Well, well, maybe, uh, maybe I can do this. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I decided, you know, I'd learned early in my career that when, when opportunities knock, you shouldn't disregard yeah. them. You should consider right. them. Um, Answer the door. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and when I went up and I interviewed, um, I think it was actually my second interview, one of the board members asked me, Vern, what do you think the role of state fund should be? And, mm. you know, wow. in my private sector experience, 
we had always said, well, state funds should just be the carrier of last resort and they should stay out of it hmm. for everyone else because they just mess up the market. You know, of course, that was kind of self-serving. I was pretty sure that sure. would be the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I hadn't really thought about it until that moment. Mm. And it occurred to me that if a good, healthy state fund could make the system better for everyone. Mm. And at that moment, I realized I'll never Great have answer. an opportunity to make as big a difference, you know, in yeah. my career as taking on a challenge like this. And I, I, then I started to really want it. Yeah. Because. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. With that type of thinking. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, tell us how would your, or how has your leadership style evolved over time through all these companies and these uh, evolutions with higher levels of responsibility? I will. I guess the biggest lesson that I've learned over time um, it has been about really listening. Uh, and mm. uh, you can it's easy to say that you know i I listen and I value input, but right. you know, so many of us have leadership examples, you know, the people that led us. And when I started, those two uh, years at UCLA <laughs> <laughs> right exactly. and even if you even if you don't, behave on an interpersonal level like that, or maybe you're not as volatile. The When I started my career at say, Crawford & Company as an adjuster, the senior leaders would come out and they'd visit an office and they'd spend most of their time, if not all their time, with management. Yeah. And they wouldn't really engage with the staff. Mm. And so that's yeah. the model I saw. And that's the model I started to follow when I got promoted to be a regional vice mm. president in a home office. And then one day I thought, because I looked at some employee survey results uh, mm. and, and in so my, <laughs> yeah, in my area, the, and the survey results were good I, at the time right. I was at Zenith and, and generally they, great culture, a great culture. But in my area of the organization, it was very interesting. The question was asked, um, the most senior leadership of this organization is, you know, I forget the exact question, but basically engaged. I trust them. And, and then they define the senior leadership as the CEO, CFO, president. Um, mm. And in my area of the organization, which had the most people, the score was like four or five points lower than in other areas of the organization. Wow. And I thought, well, how could that be? They're the same senior leaders <laughs> for right. the whole organization. Yeah. Why do they have a lower view? Why, yeah. why are they seen that way? So I decided to mm. go out and as I visited offices that year to, to sit down and just spend time with every single employee in claims, mm. you know, 20, 30 minutes. I think it scared people quite a bit initially. <laughs> because Probably your senior <laughs> management too. <laughs> maybe them, but the people who had to go and sit down with the senior vice president, you know, and, and that's a lesson right there. You shouldn't sure. be so scary, right? If, that's right. Unless, yeah, exactly. That's a reflection of the right. culture right there. You yeah. need to humanize yourself mm. because as soon as mm. you become a title, that's what you become to people unless you try right. really hard to let them to get to know you and then you have to get to know them. And when you do that, the number, the, the kinds of input you get, the things that mm. you think you've executed, the plan that you came up with in the ivy, ivory tower and then yeah. relayed to the next level of management and got relayed to the next level of management that by the time it's, it's executed, phone, phone game, right? yeah, by the time it's executed, <laughs> it's not at all what you wanted. It's not but no one's yeah. telling you that because they think wow. you want to, you, that all you want to hear is that your plan worked. So you go out and you, you, 
you interact with people and build trusting relationships and you get the truth. And then you're empowered. What did you discover? What, what were some of the things that you learned? Over the years, I, I've learned so many things, uh, but for- No, I mean, specifically specific, in that, that approach with sitting down with claims, what were, uh, what were some of the high points of what they told you? Uh, the, the amount of time that people were spending on a particular process, mm. um, which was- which, which was a great idea when it came, when, when the organization decided we need this process. And I think it actually led to higher quality, but right. the process had taken over and now it was process for process sake and mm. not really, people had forgotten why the process was why created in order to get yeah. a certain level of quality result. Instead, right. All that was being measured was the process. <laughs> What's and, the process? <laughs> oh, and, and the time mm. that took up by just having to follow it and, as opposed to accomplishing the intent of the process, which really gets back to, okay, let's trust people and empower them. Yeah. And also, you know, if they choose to do something a different way and it works, that's let's fine. Reward them. It's, it's reward <laughs> them, yeah. If, they, if they're empowered to do something a different way, they're also accountable for making it be the you know, the right decision that works, you know, and right, um, right. so that, that level of um, eye-opening, and it, it actually changed some of the agenda that we had for a, a great deal of the agenda we had for how we were spending technology resources, rather right. than hard-courting these pro processes um, into our systems, you know, we said, wait a minute, we need to step back, because what we're doing today, you know, might not be the right answer for tomorrow and we need more flexible systems in this way and all wow. that came from just talking to people and guess yeah. what yeah the next year when the, the that same survey <laughs> was asked <laughs> our scores were like four points higher than the rest of the higher. organization oh, goodness right so someone was listening uh, and i love it and it would have been so easy for me to say well you know that ceo and president and cfo they're just not treating claims the way they're treating everyone else yeah well, it has nothing yeah. to do with that right it's People paint leadership with a broad brush and every leader is that direct supervisor, that next level. You know, what you do impacts the entire way the people that you're responsible for perceive the organization. Yeah, so true. Well, Vern, the time's flying by, but we have a couple other questions I want to make sure we, we cover. You know, now at State Fund, you're obviously running a big organization. How many employees in total? About 4,400. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. And of course, you you uh, cover the length and breadth of the state and, and uh, hopefully are, are achieving those goals that you told that uh, board member, right? Right. <laughs> With yes. regards to becoming that. What do, what do you look for when, you know, you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Uh, that's that's a great question. Um, the, the easy answer is I look for attitude and talent. Mm. You know, uh, mm. you talked earlier about how we as an industry tend to value insurance-specific experience. Right. I, you know, it's great if you come to us with the right experience that we can, you know, learn from what you've done, but it's the culture we're trying to build, the way that you treat people, and mm. and the thinking, and maybe this comes from my background and being you know a philosophy major, but the critical thinking that you bring to the picture, uh, those two things together, um, when I think culture is the engine that drives any organization, and the the way that people treat each other, the respect they have for each other, the courage they have um, to disagree. Um, mm. but to do it in a way that is about 
the issue and not about the people. Um, yeah, it, constructive, so, not destructive. The people. Yeah. It's all about yeah. relationships. I mean, right. human you know, humanity is all about relationships. And, and I look for people who are great at relationship building. Mm, fantastic. Vern, last question. And, you know, we've got a lot of folks who are, you know, 10, 15 years behind us in their own careers and, you know, kind of looking at this podcast as a way in which they can learn career points and tips on how to advance their career. And, you know, what career or life advice would you give someone who's maybe got their eyes on the C-suite or perhaps the corner office like yourself? I think I'd, I'd say two things. One is that it takes a lot of luck, you know, to hmm. to get the opportunities to come in, in the sequence you need to get here. But you have to be ready for the luck. You know, so you do what you can do. Make sure people know what you're interested in. Be ready for it. And you just never know. You might think, that the next opportunity is 15 years away and can happen in 15 days, but you have to be ready for it. Right. And I, well, case in point, you never thought you'd be CEO of state fund. Absolutely right. right? I, and I would say that <laughs> that that's happened to me multiple times in, in my career where I, I would think, yeah. Oh gosh, you know, this person ahead of me in line is never going to leave. And then something happens and an opportunity right. comes up. And if you're not ready, it might not come up for another 15 years. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think, you, you know, control what you can control there and always be ready and don't be afraid of letting people know what your interest is um, mm. uh, without uh, making demands that become unreasonable. Um, and mm. then and then the other thing is, it, it's always about what you can give, not what you're entitled mm. to. It's, you know, you, all of us have the opportunity to show our value and make ourselves um, so helpful to our organization, to to our particular boss, to the chain of command, that um, they understand that there's value there. And we don't really have, um, we're not entitled to anything. We have to earn it. And sometimes people feel like, you know, I've been here and it's my turn. And mm. if you're not getting it, um, you got to look in the mirror and say, why not? And it's not always, when you look in the mirror, it's not always you. Uh, but why are you staying there if it's right. not you? Right. I mean, you're still part yeah. of that equation. You Then you have to go and put yourself in a situation where you feel like it can work for you. Um, otherwise, we spend way too much of our time at work and the the more of your time you put into work, the more of your ego is um, tied to your success at work. And That's you right. shouldn't yeah. give that control over to someone else. You have to yeah. take control of your own destiny. It's it's not about visibility or even longevity. It's about contributions, but, but also right. enjoying the ride, right? That's it's not necessarily right. the destination, it's the journey. Oh, I, that's absolutely true. Every time I've reached a destination, um, there's this moment of, wow, and then there's what now? So I have to yeah, figure out what the yeah. new journey is. Yes. Right. Well, Vernon Steiner, President and CEO of State Fund, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.